Aloha. I am Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. This is a taped show today, so we won't be taking any calls, but there's a lot of great information that I'm certain we can all learn from. Now, we all want to have a fulfilling life, and when the time comes, have a peaceful end of life as well. But how can you make sure this happens? Well, Dr. Carolyn Hubbard from Kaiser Permanente is in the studio, lead physician for the Palliative Care Service. We're going to talk today about what sorts of things you can put in place to make sure that you do have the end-of-life care that you want. Dr. Hubbard, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you very much for having me. Now, how would you define palliative care. I mean, you know, we hear about hospice, we hear about aggressive care in the hospital. What is palliative care? What does that mean? And why do we need it? Palliative care is care directed at the relief of suffering. It is appropriate for people of any age who have a chronic, possibly life-threatening illness. And what we focus on is an individual and their family's goals of care. It's important so that an individual can be respected and can have the type of care that they really want. So what kind of illnesses might Mm -hmm. be these terminal or life-threatening illnesses Mm -hmm. for which we'd want to start talking about someone's wishes? I mean, essentially, we should probably all have this conversation before someone that you love gets sick. But what kind of illnesses sort of make this come to the forefront? So the patients that we often see for our palliative care service would be patients who have stage 3 or 4 cancer, who have end-stage kidney disease, end-stage heart failure, severe lung disease, anybody who has a chronic life-threatening illness, including things like dementia, um, Lou Gehrig's disease, illnesses like that. So things that we expect will eventually progress at some point. Correct. So palliative is Mm -hmm. not hospice. Correct. Hospice is a benefit um, which is provided to patients who have a life expectancy of six months or less. Palliative care is appropriate for any patient regardless of their prognosis as long as they have a chronic illness and that they have suffering that may, we may be able to improve. So in what ways are the services that palliative care can offer different than the services of what hospice can offer? So hospice is a type of palliative care, which is more focused, as we talked about at the very end, so six months uh, or less of life. Palliative care can provide relief of physical, emotional, spiritual suffering, and can help provide resources for patients who are also facing financial suffering. So palliative care, you can still treat the illness? That's correct. So a patient can still be receiving curative therapy at like the same time. Like chemotherapy, exactly. dialysis, whatever it might be. Exactly. At the same time that they're receiving palliative care. So it sounds like it's great. Why didn't we do it earlier? That's a good question. I think we have spent a lot of time and energy focusing on technology and things that we can do. And we lost a bit of focus in terms of the big picture. And what should we be doing? And what do our patients really want us to do on their behalf? And, you know, it's funny because when I first was in medical school, it was sort of, okay, you're going to do everything or you're going to treat this person no matter what the situation. Heart stops, breathing stops, do absolutely everything. 
or you're going to do nothing. Mm -hmm. And do nothing really should be termed differently as respectfully let nature take its course. And Mm -hmm. so there really wasn't this in-between. And yet we all knew, and I'm sure you felt the same way going through training, that we were missing something. There was that Mm -hmm. in-between where somebody still wants to treat their major illness, but they also need that extra emotional support and, in some cases, psychological support. And they just need some help along the way because Mm -hmm. that's an area that we never really dealt with well. So it sounds like this is something that really it's coming to the forefront. We're talking about it more because we want people to be able to make decisions about what they want now when they can tell us. That's correct. Ideally, what we would like is for patients to be able to direct their care and ideally to start having these conversations before they're in a crisis. What we end up finding is so many people don't want to have the conversation, they're uncomfortable having the conversation, that it's left to a moment of crisis in the hospital when the person can no longer share what's really important to them and the family or the loved ones are trying to guess what the their loved one might have wanted. And, you know, I always use my family as an example of good and not necessarily so good things. And so we kind of faced this crisis a few years ago with my mother and picture. We have two two of my uh, siblings are lawyers, and I have another sibling who's a doctor and myself. So here's the four kids, two lawyers and two doctors. We are a hospital's worst nightmare because we also don't all get along, and so mm-hmm. we don't all agree. Mm-hmm. And there's my mother, no advance directive. We have to make some decisions mm-hmm. for her. And I think we made the right ones because she was showing progress and getting better. And so the decisions were almost easy for us to make based on her improvement. But I often look back to that moment and I go, you know, that really could have been done differently. Mm -hmm. And or if we had only known what some of her wishes are. Mm -hmm. And so now that, you know, she's recovered a bit from the stroke and is verbally able to communicate, we've really made clear, listen, we want to know if something happens, what would you like Mm -hmm. so that we can respect your wishes? Now, that's one of the areas where palliative care has some expertise. The conversation you talk about having, what are some of the elements of this conversation that we should all have with our loved ones, with our family members, with friends, with people who we know may at some point in the near future face a serious illness? What are the elements of this conversation that we have? So important elements to have in the conversation are one of the big questions is prolongation of life at the ending of life. And that's one of the questions on the Advanced Healthcare Directive. And what that question is really asking is if you are at the ending of your life and there are no longer treatments that can make you better, and being on machines would really only postpone the time of your natural passing, would you want to be kept on a machine? And that's a difficult You know, Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of these terms. You mentioned Mm -hmm. advanced care directive. Mm -hmm. That's a particular form. Correct. And that form often indicates what people would want. Is this, this is a, it can be a pre-printed form that they can fill out. Mm -hmm. What are some of the elements on this form? I want to talk about them a little bit more in detail. So on an advanced care directive, what are some of the questions that it asks? So one of the questions is, is going to be, would you want your life prolonged on machines at the ending of life? So we're talking about things along the lines of, do you want CPR? No. No. Okay. This is past that point. This is you have a terminal illness. Let's say you have a very severe cancer and you've had all the treatments you can have and they're 
are no more medical treatments to try and cure that cancer. And the only way, let's say you're in a coma even from this cancer, and the only way to continue keeping you alive would be to have you on a breathing machine. That's the type of question that the first part of the advanced healthcare directives is prolongation of life on machines at the ending of life. And so the alternatives would be don't put me on a breathing machine or take me off of one if I choose not to. Correct. And allow me to pass if it's my time to pass. So that's the first sort of section. Correct. What else is on an advanced directive? So the a lot of advanced directives ask about artificial nutrition. So if you, again, were at the ending of life and you were not able to take in food by mouth, would you want a tube either through your nose or directly into the stomach to give you artificial nutrition? And this pretty much is a yes or no. Do you want it or you're not? Correct. If somebody were to say, I don't want nutrition, I do want hydration, IV fluids, is that mm-hmm. different? You can. There usually is an area on the Advanced Healthcare Directive where you can put in specifics. So, for example, if the question on the form is very black and white, but you want to give a shade of gray, you can add that in. And the gray could be, try it for a couple of weeks. If exactly. I don't get better, let me go. Exactly. A time-limited trial. And what are the other elements on this advanced directive? Another question on the advanced directive would be, would you want pain, meca- excuse me, pain medication to relieve pain if you were suffering at the end of life? And I hope for most people the answer is probably going to be yes, please don't let me suffer. So, but, I mean, certain people may have different thoughts on it. So those are the three big questions. What else is on that? Are those the three biggies? So those are the three big questions on the Advanced Healthcare Directive. Again, you can add in specifics. So, for example, if you would prefer to be cremated, you could add that onto your form. If you wanted your organs to be donated, that could be something you could write in. The other big part on the form is where you can designate your power of attorney for health care decision-making. All right, we're going to get to that in just a minute. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Carolyn Hubbard from Kaiser Permanente. She is the lead physician of their palliative care service, and we are talking today about an end-of-life and transition care. Advanced directives, we're going to talk about the PULST form, Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, in just a few minutes. And we're really discussing that conversation that is most hard to have with family, friends, loved ones, if you're in a position where you might not be doing well or you have a terminal illness. But it is such an important conversation to have even before that happens. And we're talking about what that means and hopefully going to demystify some of the forms that are out there that people might get confused about. Now, we were just mentioning about the Advanced Care Directive, and that's a a paper that you can have either pre-printed And there are some simple questions on it. You can get it from most doctor's offices. Hospitals have these. You can also have one prepared at your legal office, at your lawyer's office. That's another way that you can do that. And you were about to mention a medical power of attorney. Now, this isn't about the money. This is about the health care. So what does a medical power of attorney entail? Who, Who can that person be? Does it have to be your spouse? Could it be somebody else? You can elect anyone on, to make decisions on your behalf. It is important that the person that you select, you have a conversation with. You let them know about yeah. it. Hey, guess what we're going to do? You're going to make decisions if I can't mm-hmm. and, le- and what you want. Mm-hmm. And so you need to not only share with them what your choices would be, 
but also making sure that they're comfortable upholding those wishes. Because sometimes it happens that the person chosen disagrees with the choices, and they, they have their own internal struggle about actually supporting them. So the, the responsibility of the medical power of attorney is not to make the decision, but to make sure that everyone follows the decision that that individual has already made. Correct. It's to support the decisions that the patient has already made or would want based on their values. So that's a hefty responsibility. It is. And it sounds like it's not one to be taken lightly. That's correct. Have you ever had a situation where, and I don't know if this has happened in your practice, but where you've had a medical power of attorney who has not followed the advance directive? And if so, what happens then? It's a very challenging situation when the person who is designated is having challenges following the wishes of the patient. And we have met with uh, power of attorneys in this situation as well as family members to try and clarify as best as possible what the patient intended when they filled out the form and how best to support the patient with those wishes. And sometimes these cases do end up going to the ethics committee because of the concern that we are not supporting the patient as best as we could. And in that case, I'm assuming that the patient is not able to answer for themselves, so they can't really correct. weigh in on this. That's correct. We're really looking at the paperwork afterwards. And sometimes we, what we look at, too, is to find out more about the person. So if they've elected a power of attorney and they have a second power of attorney and there's been conversations among different people, then we can find out some more about that person because the other thing that happens is people change their mind and they forget to update their form. And that could happen where the person has said, well, in this situation, actually, I would really want this, but never put it in writing. And in those situations, you are relying on information being provided to you from the people who knew the patient best to That's try and clarify. One. It's very tricky. Absolutely. It's very tricky. If, if you, and you can, but one of the things that the people need to know is that you can change your mind. Exactly. It's okay to change your mind. Mm -hmm. And that that's that's allowed. Mm -hmm. This is a flexible document. Mm -hmm. And so you may change who your power of attorney is. You may change what your decision is on this form. And so that's okay. Just note it somewhere, document it somewhere if possible. Well, it's a process. The Advanced Healthcare Directive is not a one-time document that you complete and you put away and you forget about. It's something that should be reviewed periodically, especially as your health changes, as the people who you might want to make decisions for you changes, and as the health of your decision maker changes. Because sometimes the person you've elected really can't make decisions down the road because of their own health issues. That's another good point. Make sure you choose somebody who may be able to be around if you mm -hmm. need that mm -hmm. or that, are, that is in good health. It would be hard to have someone suffering from their own medical illness and say, you must decide because you are designated for this other person. Exactly. And so that's another reason. I think the hardest part of that form that comes up, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the part where it says if you're in a condition where you are not expected to recover. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't know if they were to have some event happen, how do you know if I'm going to recover or not if you don't try? Mm -hmm. So how do we address mm -hmm. that initial part of the documentation that says, if I have a terminal illness or a life-threatening condition where I'm not going to recover, 
how do you how do you fix that conundrum? How do you know how long to keep trying? Is well, I mean, because a lot of people say, well, if I have an illness, I want them to try and at mm-hmm. least do mm-hmm. something to get me better. If if I will get better, but then if I'm not going to get better and you don't think so, then let me go. So when somebody is having a having a serious illness. How do you know? How do they know, really, if they're going to have a chance of coming back from some type of illness or not? I imagine when you talk with people and Mm -hmm. families, this is something that comes up quite a bit. So it is hard because we can't generally say 100% absolute, no one is going to get better. But if you have patients, for example, I'm going to take the cancer patient again, who has a cancer that has spread, that they've gone through several different rounds of chemotherapy, all the possible treatment options, and they're no longer able to eat, for example, that's not somebody that we're going to be able to turn that process around. So in those cases, it becomes more clear. Sometimes you do have patients evaluated by several different providers to make sure that have we tried everything, have we done everything that we can, and other times you may do certain types of treatment for a period of time to see, is this something that we could make better? Now, how do we compare and contrast the PULST form, Physician's Order mm-hmm. for Life-Sustaining Treatment, mm-hmm. and the Advanced Directive? Because they're two separate forms. Mm-hmm. They serve two separate needs, mm-hmm. but they're very similar. So the Advanced Healthcare Directive is really about the ending of life and whether a person would want their life prolonged on machines at the very ending. The post form is a question about CPR, the first, the first part of the form. And that is if the patient is found without a pulse and is not breathing, would the person want CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, attempted? That's the chest compressions, and that's potentially being put on a breathing machine. That's correct. So the process of CPR is usually a package deal where you do the chest compressions, you may do shock, and you may also put the breathing tube down to um, put the person onto a breathing machine. So that's a separate question. Correct. That's not in the advanced directive? That's correct. So when you talk about the pulse, this is a bright green form. Mm -hmm. Some people have copies, they're white, but it's generally a very shocking green colored form. And we've talked about it before on the show. That's a form that you have in your house or in your care facility or wherever. And that form is the instruction and orders for emergency personnel and what to do until you are brought to the emergency room. Correct. Correct. So you mentioned that one of the things in that form is CPR or no CPR. Right. So when the emergency personnel, if someone calls 911 and they show up at your house, they're supposed to look for this green form to know, do they attempt CPR or do they not? But there are some other things on the form that are very similar to what's on the advanced directive. Right. So the second section of the form is what type of medical interventions would the patient want? And there's three basic designations of the type of care. Would they want care focused on comfort, medications, oxygen, positioning, to maximize comfort but not go to the hospital unless they couldn't be kept comfortable in their current situation? That's the – go ahead. Again, telling the emergency personnel, take them in the ambulance to the hospital or not. Correct. Okay. The second part of the – the second choice on the Section B um, talks about limited interventions. So that means you can take the patient to the hospital. You could do things like medications through an IV, fluids. You could do oxygen via a face mask. But that in that case, the person wouldn't want 
the breathing machine. So another way to clarify and sort of in between, instead of all or nothing, this is Correct. do what you can, but non-invasive. Correct. Okay. And then the last option would be full treatment, which is you may do any types of medical interventions in an attempt to prolong my life. And that particular order is just meant for who? The emergency personnel? So the, what, the way we use this in the hospital is as a jumping off point. So if a person has a pulsed form that has certain choices made and they come to the emergency room, then the way we use that is to look at it and say, okay, this person has made these choices. Let's clarify if they're able to clarify at this point, are these choices still the correct ones for us to follow? And that helps us to direct their care. So the first thing is clarify, see if they've changed their mind. Exactly. Okay. And then how is the pulse used with the advanced directive? What if they say two separate things? So that is always a very confusing situation. If, for example, the advanced healthcare directive says to prolong life and the pulse says, well, do not attempt CPR and, and give comfort measures. And it's so, kind of saying the opposite thing. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And that makes it very challenging. Sometimes what we will do is if the patient is still able to have that conversation, we can bring the forms to them and say, we have these two forms and they say different things. Could you please help us clarify? And then we can update whichever form is no longer valid. That's the ideal situation when we can still ask the patient. Sometimes we have to look at when they were filled out, what types of choices may have changed along the way. But that's when it gets a lot more complicated. Well, because it sounds it. I mean, I think, you know, years ago we told everyone, write down your wishes, have mm -hmm. an advanced directive. And some older advanced directives address the CPR issue. That's correct. The forms have changed over time. They have. And mm -hmm. so I've seen, and that becomes another mm -hmm. question, how often should you update them? I've got some folks that are in their 80s and 90s, and they filled out these forms in their 70s. And so the forms are 10, 15, 20 years old. Mm-hmm. They're still legally valid. Correct. If they still state what the particular individual wants, then, then keep the, it. Exactly. If, there's, if the choices that they have made are consistent with the choices they still want to make and the person that they have selected as their agent is still somebody who is able and willing to be that decision maker, then there's no need to change it. Then your form could be from 1970. It doesn't matter. That's correct. Okay. That's correct. That's good to know. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to a discussion about uh, end-of-life care transition and those confusing forms that everybody talks about, the Pulse to the Advanced Directive. We're going to clarify that a little further. I'm here with Dr. Carolyn Hubbard from Kaiser Permanente, and she is the lead physician in their palliative care service. And so we're talking about this Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment Form. This is a bright green colored form, several different sections. You can actually use that to designate what your wishes are. I'm curious, Dr. Hubbard, can that ever replace an advanced directive? It does not replace the advanced health care directive. Ideally, you would have both. Exactly. In a perfect world, exactly. in a reality world, could you have everything written down on a post and would that be able to be sufficient enough for those end-of-life decisions? I don't think so. What's, I, I really what's think missing? The POA, the power of attorney for health care, is not designated in the same way on the physician's orders for life-sustaining treatment, the POLST, as it is on the advanced health care directive. So could you use the advanced health care directive instead of the POLST? You can use the advanced health care directive, but again, it doesn't answer the question. The newer forms don't answer the question about CPR. 
if an emergency personnel was called to your house mm-hmm. and you were unfortunately unable to answer for yourself mm-hmm. and you have an advanced directive, but you don't have the physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, mm-hmm. are the ambulance drivers allowed to follow the advanced directive? Because the advanced directive doesn't talk about the CPR, they are going to default to do CPR. And that's the big issue that we want to clarify, is that if you don't have, if you decide, respectfully so, that you do not want to have your life prolonged, should your heart stop, your breathing stop, or something happen, and you wrote that down in your advanced directive, and that advanced directive Mm -hmm. is one of the older ones that said, no CPR, no machines, etc., That directive cannot be followed until you're brought to an emergency room. And because of that, you will be resuscitated because you don't have the post. Well, they will attempt to resuscitate Well, attempt. That's true. Okay. Because we're not not guaranteeing that it's (laughs) going to work. But I really want to go over that point because, Mm -hmm. you know, the the idea of the physician's order for life-sustaining treatment, the post form, that's a form that came out of the fact that really an ambulance personnel, EMT, Etc. are not allowed to to make decisions That's based on advanced directives. Right. They need physicians' orders. That's correct. That's why that whole form mm-hmm. came about to try and clarify this issue. And the reason it's important is because if you do have an advanced directive and you're very clear about what you want or what you don't, just having that available for the ambulance personnel is not enough. And you need to have the other form. That's correct. If you don't. They you will. you mm-hmm. will be, and maybe that's okay, and if that's what you want, that's fine. But if you're really firm and definitive in your advanced directive, and if you are 95, 96, 97, you're amazing. I'm so happy you've lived so long. But you probably have strong feelings on wanting to pass away peacefully in your home or wanting to be brought to a hospital if necessary, and you want to make sure that your wishes are followed. So when you talk with people who don't have either form, how do you go through the process of counseling them about what to how how they should interpret these forms and what to put? I mean, we mm-hmm. don't tell people, yeah, you should be resuscitated, and no, you shouldn't. But what right. kind of guidance are you able to give people? Because this is really this the initial step for which right. the rest of end of life care, palliative care, and hospice kind of branches out of right. is knowing what someone's wishes are. So how do you go about that counseling process? So initially, the way we start off is we ask a question of the patient and or the family, and that is what do they understand about their illness? Because depending on what they understand, if the understanding is not good, they may not be able to make good decisions on on their own behalf. So by checking their understanding up front, we can help fill in the gaps, make sure that the patient or whoever is making decisions for them really understands the situation. And then what we'd like to do is find out more about what are their goals of care? What means quality of life to them? Because then we can help to guide them as to, okay, if this is what is the most important to you, then we can help reach that via this. So for some people, they would say, if I'm on a machine and in a nursing home and I am not aware of anybody around me, that is still quality of life. Okay, that can help to us to guide us as to what types of decisions would be consistent for them. If they tell us that's not how I want the ending of my life to be, I wouldn't be at home, I want to be with my family when it's my time, and I don't want to come back to the hospital, then that can also help to guide us and to guide the patient and their family. So the real key initial discussion is knowing what it is that the individual 
understands about their illness and what is it that they want. Exactly. What is their, what means quality of life to that individual? And it's very different for different people. And it might surprise you. That's exactly You know, right. I think that's the other thing is having that discussion in the midst of other people, perhaps, hopefully the medical power of attorney is really important because you really get to understand what is it that they truly want. And it might just be different than what you'd expect. That's right. And the other thing is that the forms can't capture nuances. So there's a lot of medical interventions that we can do that are not listed on the forms. And in order for the power of attorney to really make a good decision, they have to understand the bigger picture. So that's why it's important to have the bigger picture conversation. And that conversation is what is the illness, what is their understanding of quality of life, and how do they want this transition to occur. Right. What do they the want hospital, that to look like? Hospital. Exactly. exactly. Okay. Yeah. Now, have tell me some horror stories, because I like to hear stories. They don't have to be horror stories, but, you know, I'm sure you've had experience where things have gone wrong. And I was just reading a book earlier today, a fabulous book, um, that was entitled How We Do Harm. I don't... I. I don't know why I read medical books when I'm not at work, but I do. It was written by a Dr. Otis Webb Brawley, and in it, he has some really interesting thoughts. He's actually, I think, the current head of the American Cancer Society, and and he has some really interesting descriptions of how things have gone wrong. And as a trainee, having someone whose family just said, keep going, keep going, keep going. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, there was this poor individual who did not have an advanced directive, did not have a pulsed form, having significant numbers of medical interventions done up until the very end that were uh, clearly futile in the eyes of the physicians. And yet at that time, which was in the late 80s or so, there was no such thing as an advanced directive that they had or followed, that they had to do everything if the family said do everything. Um, advanced directives existed, but they just didn't have one for this individual. And it struck me as I read that chapter how difficult that would be for the family who says, if there's any hope, we want to give him a chance, and yet not yet completely understand that some of those interventions are not painful. Are, are painful. They're not comfortable. They're not expecting to actually bring him back to a quality of life that he would want in this particular book. Have you had these sorts of things happen? Yes, we have. Um, We had fairly recently a case of an older gentleman whose wife was not well. She had some memory problems, and he had 12 children. And he did I thought not. my family yeah. was bad. The doctors and the lawyers, 12 children. Okay. He had 12 children, and of course, he was an older individual, so he had grandchildren. And he did not have an advanced health care directive, and of course, every child had a different opinion on what dad would want, and mom was not in a great state of health herself. But she, because there was no advanced health care directive, she became the designated surrogate. The family decided she should make decisions, but it was very hard for her. And so what ended up happening is the children began to fight amongst themselves about what should happen to the patient. And he ended up getting a lot of invasive procedures done when clearly he wasn't going to benefit from them. And there was a lot of family strife. Some of the family after a while began feeling that, wow, we're really hurting our our father. And other members of the family felt like, well, you're giving up. And it became an ugly situation for the family. And unfortunately, the patient was the one caught in the middle having a lot of things done to him that were not going to make his life either longer or better. And eventually, the the good ending to the story is that 
over time, the family was able to process and to come together and to finally allow for the patient to pass when it was his time and to keep him comfortable in that process. But getting there was a lot of angst. And it didn't need to be. It didn't need to be. Now, you mentioned something designated surrogate. Correct. So if you have not completed a form, but you are still able to verbally say, this is the person that I would like to make medical decisions on my behalf, and you are able to consistently say that, then we can complete what's called a designated surrogate form. If the patient is in the situation where they cannot designate a surrogate, then the interested parties of that patient can get together and elect a non-designated surrogate. But again, this is not somebody the patient has chosen. It's somebody that the interested parties have chosen. And when you say interested parties, it sounds very legal. But what you really mean is all the family or friends that are there. That you are able to get together to make that decision. Okay. Yeah. And would it automatically be a spouse or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. As again, because sometimes if the spouse is the same age as the patient, they may also have their own health issues. And they may not feel comfortable making those decisions. Exactly. 12 children. Okay. Yeah. That makes me feel better. My family <laughs> isn't that bad, right? So other... Have you had other events where there have been some issues? Well, I can tell you about a a really good situation that happened actually um, to a a close friend whom I went to visit on the mainland because she had chronic lung problems. She was in and out of the hospital. She was on home oxygen. And I was concerned that her time wouldn't be long. So I went to visit her. And while I was with her, we started talking about what I do and the conversations I have. And she said, wow, that's fascinating because, you know, I never want to be on that breathing machine. I was on that breathing machine before, and it was horrible, and I never, ever want that to happen again. And I asked her, well, but what if if you don't have the breathing machine, you're going to pass? And she said, that's okay. My husband's already gone. I feel like I've had a great life. I'm ready. When it's my time, I'm ready. So I asked her, did you tell your family about this? And she said, no. So we're at the dinner table. She bangs on her glass, and she makes an announcement at the dinner table. Hey, everybody, I just want you to know I don't want a breathing machine. And her family, of course, was stunned. And they said, to their credit, they said, okay, let's talk about this. And so she was able to tell them, this is what I want. This is what I don't want because I've been through it before, and I know. And her family, again, to their credit, said, okay, we hear you. We will support you. So I I talked to my friend after the dinner, and I said, well, that was gutsy, and I'm glad you did it. Now the next thing is you need to tell your doctor. So she went the very next week. She talked to her doctor. She filled out her forms. I flew back to Hawaii. A week later, she was in the hospital. Wow. She had a severe pneumonia. The question came up, do we put her on a breathing machine? And the family said no. She was very clear. She didn't want a breathing machine. And as part of that same conversation, she had told her family, you know, when it's my time, I want to die at home and I want to be alone. So out of this one conversation, when she went to the hospital, they were able to share that with the hospital staff and say, look, she really wants to be at home when it's her time. If you can get her well enough to go home, that's what we want for her. And they were. They were able to get her home. She actually went home with home hospice support. And she passed away in her home two days later. Wow. So just from that discussion she had with you, mm-hmm. she told her family, she, I'm getting goosebumps. She got exactly <laughs> what it is that she wanted. Mm-hmm. 
Now, let's talk about that. We've talked about the forms. Mm-hmm. We've talked about palliative care. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about hospice because mm-hmm. that's another thing that I think scares people because when you've decided mm-hmm. that, well, when life has decided that your medical illness is not going to get better, mm-hmm. the average the average length of stay in hospice is, is actually – you know, 14 days, I think that's the Hawaii national uh, or the Hawaii average and the national average is, I think, something like 18 or 19 days based on stats from I think these were 2013 stats. And so, you know, people are not in hospice very long. Mm-hmm. And yet hospice allows people to be participating with their programs for up to six months. And some people outlive hospice and, mm-hmm. you know, you think they're not going to do well and I've got the case of, a, of an individual here in the islands who we really thought they're 95, this was going to be it. And, you know, they woke up after their stroke and they're doing great and they don't need hospice anymore. They've, they've mm-hmm. managed. So, you know, it's, it's not a terminal decision. You don't have to. You can actually be unenrolled or disenroll. Graduate. We call it you graduate. You can graduate. <laughs> okay. That's a good way to put it. You can graduate from hospice. Um, but tell me about why it is that we don't intervene with that earlier. I mean, I've brought up hospice to individuals and the family members have often said, but you're giving up on them. And I say, no, no, no. Mm -hmm. We are just trying to provide more services because their medical illness does not seem to be showing any improvement. And there's medical statistics to show that they may not have very long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are some of the areas where hospice can really help? and, And how can we engage in this conversation sooner? So I think you bring up a good point about hospice is in some ways people are afraid of the word. If you ask patients and families what they what their understanding of hospice is, sometimes they'll say, well, that's some place where people go to die. And it's not that there's not the understanding that hospice is a service to make whatever time you have the best it can be, the most comfortable it can be in the setting that either the patient or the family chooses, depending on their care. And so when we bring up hospice, we do bring it up during our consults if we feel the patient is appropriate and if the services are in line with their goals of care. So if they tell us, you know, I whatever time I have, I really want to spend it at home with my family. Okay, that's a perfect patient for hospice services if they if they meet the prognosis uh, requirements. And then we'll bring that up as, well, what what is your understanding of hospice? And then they can share with us what their fears are. So we can talk about that right away. So they tell us, well, sometimes they say, I don't know about hospice. And so we share the hospice philosophy. Or sometimes they'll tell us what they're afraid of, and we can help to clarify. And then we can share the services that hospice can provide for the patient and for the family so that they can really make an informed decision about whether that service is right for them or not. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. I'm talking with Dr. Carolyn Hubbard from Kaiser Permanente. We're talking about end-of-life care. She is the lead physician for their palliative care service. And we're talking about what is the difference, palliative care versus hospice, pulsed form versus advanced directives. And these are all very important issues that we really all need to know about. Either you or you may have a loved one or a family member who these things may become critically important and you never know when. So I want to clarify that about about hospice and and make sure that people understand what these services mm-hmm. happen to be. What what is it that hospice provides? You mentioned services to family members and services to the individual. 
Like what kind? So what hospice can provide is a nurse that can come out to the home and check on the patient, see if, if they're comfortable, what kinds of needs they might have. They are available 24 hours a day. So if the caregiver for the patient has a question or concern in the middle of the night, they can pick up the phone, call the hospice agency, get some advice. Oftentimes, the hospice agencies will provide medications for comfort for the patient so that they can give instructions and say, okay, take this medication that you have at home and give this amount this often. If that works, great. If not, give us a call back. If the patient is not having the comfort that they would like, then the hospice nurse can always come out, check on the patient. They also have access to social workers. They have um, providers who can come out and help with bathing. And the families also receive bereavement services after the patient passes. So it's especially important for kids or people who may be struggling with the death of their loved one to have these services. So this is something that can continue even after the individual passes away. Correct. So the bereavement services usually are provided for about up to about a year after the patient passes. Anytime I've ever talked with family members who of individuals who have passed away through hospice, Mm -hmm. I've never heard them say anything negative. I've always heard them say there's there's several different hospice organizations here in Hawaii, and I've always heard family members say we were so appreciative Mm -hmm. for what they were able to do. Mm -hmm. How is it that we can bring up the issue of hospice earlier? I mean, I almost wonder if in an advanced care planning clinic or in a service, you could even bring that up and say, when the time comes, Mm -hmm. although it might not be now, we need to talk a little bit about what hospice can do for you. That's exactly right. I think as providers, sometimes we have so much fear around bringing up hospice that we wait to the last minute. So even if the patient and family might have been ready earlier, we've dragged our feet on it. And we do actually bring it up. If we have a patient who maybe is still receiving curative therapy therapy or or attempting curative therapy, but we think that maybe hospice might be appropriate down the road, we'll bring it up as an informational. So we'll say, this is not for right now, but if at some point you decide that you no longer want to pursue this particular therapy, this is a service that might be beneficial for you. And we will do what are called informational referrals so that if the patient or the family says, yeah, that sounds like services that I'd be interested in down the road, we can link the patient um, and the family up with the service up front so that they already have a contact number. They already have met with the service so that when they're ready, it's a quick phone call. All the paperwork's already gone through. So it's an easy way to transition. Exactly. Exactly. Now, there's another, there's another question that comes up that I don't think we have a good understanding of here. Well, I don't want to say understanding as much as I don't think we have a good policy about here in Hawaii. And I think that has to do with the fact that some people towards the end of life are in a lot of pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. And if they're enrolled in hospice, the goal is to alleviate Mm -hmm. that pain and suffering. What do you think is going to happen in the future as far as the next step? You know, certain states are allowing physician-assisted suicide um, Mm -hmm. for people who have terminal illnesses. We don't do that here Mm -hmm. legally in Hawaii. It's Mm -hmm. not something that Mm -hmm. we have the capacity to do. Should we be moving in that direction? It's always a conundrum. You know, Mm -hmm. as physicians, we're trained to to treat people, to make them healthy, to make them better. And yet when you can't, Mm -hmm. 
there's this whole other issue that comes up. And I'm not even sure that I'm not even sure that there's enough information out there to make an adequate decision as a physician, let alone as a poor particular individual, a patient Mm -hmm. who's stuck in this situation. But hospice is sort of a step towards alleviating suffering. It's kind of a step in that direction. Well, I think that if we can really focus on very diligent symptom management, so treating the pain, treating the depression, being very creative about how we support the patient and the family, to me, that's the right way to go, is to really elicit what is causing the suffering, because if we can be very clear, then we have a much better chance of relieving that suffering. So shortness of breath, for example, we can give medications that will alleviate the symptoms of shortness of breath, air hunger, if someone calls it that. Um, We can do things that help to make someone comfortable. Right. And I guess what I also want to say is that sometimes when a person is having physical pain, there can be psychological pain that's making it worse or spiritual pain that's making that worse. And if we can really target all the sources of pain, we might be able to get those symptoms under better control. And that's where you mentioned the coordination of the services, the emotional support, the social service support, the psychological support, the Mm -hmm. spiritual support. Mm -hmm. These are some of the things that are involved in hospice care. Mm -hmm. And they're also involved in palliative care. Correct. That's correct. When we come to see a patient under our palliative care service in the hospital, we bring a team. So it's a physician, a nurse, a social worker, and a chaplain. So that depending on where the patient and family are struggling or where they're suffering, we can help to address that as best as possible. So when you, so this is a service that is inpatient for you? For our hospital, yes. We're, it's an for inpatient service. For your hospital, service. it's an inpatient mm-hmm. service, people in the hospital, and you're part of the lead physician of that team. Correct. The team that includes the chaplain and the nurse and the social worker and yourself to really address these issues. That's Do right. you, you know, I practice in, a, in an office. Do you feel like that should that discussion should start in the office? Ideally, we want that discussion to start so much earlier than it generally does. And ideally, it would happen with the primary care provider because that's the person who knows the patient over a long period of time and really has that established relationship with the person. So how can we do it better? How can we as outpatient clinic doctors do it better? If someone is actively treating their cancer, shall we call it, if that's the situation, and they're seeing their oncologist and they're doing treatments, how can we do it better without making them feel like they're giving up? I think you can ask them a question. Uh, For example, how are these treatments working for you? How much longer would you like to be doing these treatments? If you could no longer receive these treatments, what kind of care would you like? It's really asking them questions about what they see as their future and their goals and how you could best support them in those goals. And what if you're the patient? Mm -hmm. How would you think or how do people bring it up to you to help you to initiate that conversation? You mentioned you went on a trip and you're talking with your friend about Mm -hmm. it. If someone wants to bring this up with their doctor, how do they do it? So how do they get there to start the conversation? I mean, it's 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 a two-way street, right? right? So doctors, we should be initiating this discussion with people before they get seriously ill mm-hmm. or before they have a serious terminal illness and say, hey, think about some of these thoughts. But how would, if if somebody said, I wish my doctor would ask me, they never ask me, I want to bring it up, how can they do that? Well, they could bring it up in the form of, let's talk about a form. I want to fill out my advanced health care directive. They could talk about it in the context of, oh, I heard there's a new post. 
Can we talk about that? Or they can bring it up just as, Doc, let's talk about my future. And can you help clarify things for me? And what should we be looking at? That takes a very brave patient to bring it that does, up. It does. It does. But I want to make sure that people realize it's a, it's a double responsibility. That's right. it's, it's a two-way street. It's a physician responsibility, absolutely. It's a patient responsibility. Yes. And the responsibility is to initiate the discussion. Yes. You know, we don't have the type of dictatorial medicine that maybe was going on 100 mm-hmm. years ago where basically the doctor said, you do this, and then everyone said, yes, we do this. Mm-hmm. It's much more of a it's, – it's a – team effort now. That's right. It should be. It should be an engaging interaction between a patient and their doctor so that they both come to a conclusion that is what's best for the patient. And they both understand that. It's not what the doctor wants. It is what the patient wants. That's right. In combination with knowing enough about their illness to make that decision. Right. To make an informed decision. So do you have a post? I do not have a post. I do have an advanced health care directive. Should only people with life-threatening illnesses have posts? So it's a good question, and I would say if you are someone who would not want resuscitation attempted, then you need to have a pulse. If you would want resuscitation attempted, then it's not as urgent because that's going to be the default. That's the default option anyway. Right. Right. And with advanced directives, never too early to have one. Never too early. Never too early. So any adult should be starting to have this conversation, and if you're a young adult and you don't have a significant other yet, then you have the conversation with your parents. If you have your significant other or close friends, that's the conversation. If you're an older adult, you have a spouse and children, that those are the people you have the conversation with. I just picture in my head your friend hitting the the glass, <laughs> the water glass with a fork, ding, ding, ding. Okay, everybody, here's what's going on. And how prophetic that they yes. were able to state their wishes. Yes. So she soon. was amazingly brave and it was It it was a wonderful timing, yes. It was a gift that she gave her family because after she passed, they were able to call me up and say thank you. Thank you that that conversation happened. Thank you that we knew what she wanted, and we didn't have to fight among ourselves to try and guess what we should do. And that's really the key, is everyone feeling cohesive like they're supporting the individual. That's That's right. So from from our discussion today, you know, I think a lot of important things have come out. And, you know, for anyone who is really seriously wondering if they should have a pulse or if they have a life-threatening illness, and now's the time to really bring it up. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to hear about these forms. And, you know, I've had people bring them in and say we're a little confused. Yes. We don't know how to fill it out because this is kind of what we want in the form It's meant to be a one-size-fits-all, but as Mm -hmm. we know with things that are one-size-fits-all, one-size probably doesn't fit anybody correctly. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so there are some ways that you can personalize that. That's correct. What are some of the common questions that people ask you about the Physician Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment or PULSED or about advanced directives? Well, one of the um, common questions is about tube feeding. And I have a lot of patients who... It's really hard to know, would I want artificial nutrition? And so we talk about the cases in which it might be helpful and in cases in which it may not. But, of course, you don't know what illness you're going to get down the road. And so if they're not clear about whether they want it or not, but they think, well, I would want to try it if if my condition were something that were reversible, then we'll write that in. So we'll say okay to attempt for a certain period of time 
if I may get better, but, and they, and they can add whatever other caveats, but don't continue it endlessly if I'm, if I'm not getting better. So that question comes up a lot. And I think especially in Hawaii, because our culture, every celebration is around food, it's a really hard issue for families if they're left to make that choice. Well, and it makes me hungry thinking about dinner right now. But, you know, of course, it's it's always you mentioned about tube feedings. And it's nice to know and people should feel free to be as wordy yes. and as specific mm-hmm. as they want to be. Exactly. The more specifics, the better. And as you had mentioned earlier, I just want to reiterate, these forms can be changed. So if people change their mind in any direction, the forms can be updated. If the person is around to even say what they want, they can say themselves, hey, you know correct. what? That's I've changed correct. my mind. I want this instead of this. Correct. But families or other loved ones who are not designated as the medical power of attorney really shouldn't feel as though that is their role to change what's on these forms. Correct. Unless there were some reason that they knew that the patient had said something very clearly but hadn't updated the form. But as we had mentioned, that gets really tricky. It does, because what if they only said it to one kid and not the 11 exactly. others, you know? I mean, exactly. That, that's, that's another task. That's, that's, you know. that's a very difficult task, and that does happen, where they mention it to the one that they see every day, but they don't mention it to the nine other that are living across the world. And so that becomes another issue. Exactly. So the more clear people can be in writing, the easier it is for everybody. Where do you see advanced care planning going in the next few years? What I'd like to see is a centralized system so that people who are in Kaiser and people who are in Queens and people who are, you know, with different health insurances, all of this type of information goes into one central system so that if you end up in an emergency room, which is not your primary insurance, they still know. As of right now, systems don't talk to each other. And if the document is scanned in one computer and the patient doesn't have it with them, People don't know that what those wishes are. Yeah. Sure, sure. And that's where if someone is with them and is their designated power of attorney or right. they know about the form, they right. can go get it, they can bring right. it in, or they can do something accordingly. But you're right. So you want to, it would be optimal if you either had a copy of it in your wallet or in your Correct. purse, or if you also had something easily accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that would, that hopefully will happen in the near future. Where else do you think this should go? I think we need to make it an island-wide priority or a statewide priority, I should say, that these discussions become part of the norm. This is just part of routine care that people have these conversations so it's not as scary and as taboo and as late. Because we're having the discussions too late. We're having the discussions too late. Is it because we're afraid? I think so. Just scared of saying Mm -hmm. this is what I want? I think people are afraid of talking about their death, thinking about their death, thinking of the death of someone that they love. It's just really hard. Well, and we're always surprised by people who pass away that we wouldn't expect. You know, in the last few weeks, we've had some, you know, Hollywood, Robin Mm -hmm. Williams, he's passed away. So there's people who who shock us who all of a sudden are no longer with us. And whether through their own hand or others, you know, we often often wonder, what would someone have wanted? Mm -hmm. What do you want? And I guess it's an important thing to think about now if you've witnessed this happen with your grandmother mm-hmm. or with your aunties or with your loved ones or friends or family, that you you know a little bit more about the situation, mm-hmm. what can you do to prevent it from others? 
from happening to others if there's ever been a negative consequence as opposed to right. a positive event, like you right. mentioned, where your friend was able to state, this is what I want, and then those things were actually carried out on her behalf. Mm-hmm. So having the discussion more often. That's right. And what we do, just as a segue on that, is that during our consults, if we're focusing on the patient but the spouse is there, we'll ask them, do you have your advanced health care directive? Sure. Because now this is an opportunity. Your family's all here. Say what you want. Absolutely. That's a good point, is that if you're having this discussion for grandma, you could also have the discussion for grandpa as well. Exactly. Bring it all together in one location. Yep. So start the conversation earlier and make it more accessible that we can get the information. And I I agree with you. I think having it available for different medical facilities is really essential because I've seen that happen where people are taken to another hospital just Mm -hmm. because it's the nearest and ambulances are required to take you to the nearest facility. And so if it's not your home hospital and you have those forms somewhere and you can't speak for yourself, interventions will be done. They will, Mm -hmm. even if you didn't want them, because we don't have the ability to to not do that if we don't have that information. Exactly. And so have that information available, but also express it to your loved ones yes, so that they know. Mm-hmm. And so this sounds like it's one of those things that you said, make it a, make it a state priority, make it a federal priority, mm-hmm. really have people start having these discussions. Because it's not about spending money in the healthcare arena. That's right. It's really about making sure that it's working correctly for the individual. Right. It's not about saving healthcare dollars. It's really about saving people from, from treatment they never wanted. Right. It's about respecting an individual's choices. And so it certainly sounds like there's a lot that we can do to move in that direction. I think so. Family events are coming up. Thanksgiving, Christmas, and like you said with your friends, yeah. dinner time, <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Everybody, this is what we want to do. So it's a great opportunity for people. As it's one way to clear the table is, you know, or get everybody's true. attention, I should say. Somebody so, say, I'm going to go do the dishes. I don't want to hear about this. It's a good way to get the dishes done, too, right? Really bring that up and make it more common. But, you know, it's really interesting because once you start having the conversations with people, people are generally grateful to have had the conversation. And they'll tell us, I was really afraid to have this meeting, but I'm so grateful now that we've had the meeting because I I feel so much much relief. Now, you have an event coming up that's going to be talking about the forms and how to fill them out. Right. So we have an event with Kaiser that teaches about more about the Advanced Healthcare Directive. So you can go online to kp.org and check on the dates for that. It's coming up September. I think 11th, I, I think, think 11th, I you yes. mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also, we'll uh, be doing some senior summits where we do talks at the local uh, YMCA's, YWCA's, and it's going to be talking about advanced care planning. Well, and the other place to go is talk to your doctor. Yes. Schedule an appointment. Talk with them. Tell them what your concerns are, what you want for your future. What you want. What you want that to look like. And, you know, the other thing is you don't have to have a terminal illness. You can just be getting up there in age and just wanting to express your wishes now and put it in writing. Yes. And have those forms available. All right. That's a lot of information. I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Oh, thank you. Dr. Carolyn Hubbard is the lead physician of the Palliative Care Service at Kaiser Permanente. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show, and hear our podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here at 5 on The Body Show. Thank mm-hmm. you.